So what do you say to a family member, maybe one of your children if you have children, or a close friend, when they do something extraordinary, when they, when they do something noteworthy, something significant, maybe they score the final touchdown, Maybe they're the high scorer in the game leading the team to victory. Maybe they get a scholarship. Maybe they get a promotion at work. What do we say to people that we know and love and care for when they do something extraordinary? We say, I'm proud of you. We say, good job. We say, great job. But we're saying, I'm proud of you, is what we say. So imagine how bizarre it would be. Imagine how ridiculous it would be to say to someone who, again, high score in the game, leads the team to victory, and for you to then say to that person, I'm ashamed of you. How bizarre. I mean, that's all kinds of wrong on who knows how many different levels. I'm ashamed of you? But but I, I I won I I I succeeded I played by the rules and and I did what I was supposed to do whether it's the promotion or the scholarship or the game or whatever it is I I did what I was supposed to do and I succeeded. You're ashamed of me. Bizarro world. Well, it is spiritual bizarro world sometimes for Christian pastors, for Christians, and for churches when we act. As if we are ashamed of Jesus. It almost seems too dumb to even talk about. And yet, it's real. It's a real temptation. It's a real problem. I know it's a real problem and it's a real temptation because of who I am and what I do. And I wasn't born yesterday. But I also know it because of the book of the Bible we call Second Timothy which we're studying as a church. If you want to find 2 Timothy, you're going, we're, we're going to learn about this, this horrible, bizarro world thing that's called being ashamed of Jesus. But it's a real thing. And in 2 Timothy, it's called 2 Timothy. Wait for it. Because there's a 1 Timothy. Uh, <laughs> so 2 Timothy, Paul's final letter that he, that he wrote as an apostle. It's his swan song. Uh, you write something. When you, when you know it's your last words and you're ready to die, you say what's really important. He's writing to Timothy, who is his pastoral understudy. Uh, the, the apostles, Paul's, an, Paul's a pastor and an apostle, but the apostles are going off the scene. One of the requirements for an apostle would be you had to see the risen Christ. Well, that was true for Paul, but not Timothy. So the baton is being passed. A transition is happening in the life of the church, early church, yes, and it's not going to be so early anymore. And he's going to pass the baton. And Timothy is pastoring in a city called Ephesus in the ancient world. It was cosmopolitan. Uh, It was wealthy. Uh, They were into all kinds of different religious activities. It was a booming place, a bustling place. And Timothy's having a hard go of it. We know he's pastoring in Ephesus because of what 1 Timothy says. And it's easy to apply 1 and 2 Timothy for us because there's not a big gap. Timothy's a pastor. I'm a pastor, right? Um, the church at Ephesus is a church at Ephesus. And you know what? We're a church too. We're just not in Ephesus. And, and we face all kinds of challenges and problems. But same Savior, same Human nature, same kind of struggles, generally speaking. And so I love First and Second Timothy because it really is easy for us. Uh, there's a lot of high energy things going on. But I also love it because 
when you look at the church landscape and you look at church history and you see the carnage, right? It starts out great and wonderful. We love Jesus and we love being saved from our sins and we, we love proclaiming the good news to other people. And then before you know it, we're tempted by this or that or some other shiny object. Or we somehow think that instead of being the church or pastors, instead of being pastors preaching the good news, uh, somehow we're politicians trying to get elected to be the most popular people around or, or whatever it is. The struggle's real. And so this letter, it has a lot to do with Timothy and the church he represents being ashamed. And so we're going to learn about that today. Uh, I don't think it's, it's, you know, I'm not here to scold you. I don't think this is a huge struggle for us, but I think we're always one week away. Um, and the pressure's real. So if you would, let's go ahead and read chapter 1, verses 8 to 18. We'll try to do that whole section today. And as we read, you can, you can see the stress. It comes up at least three times explicitly, but it runs throughout this matter of not being ashamed. And the reason he's going to say don't be ashamed is because... He's struggling. They're struggling with being ashamed of Jesus. Second Timothy chapter one, verse eight. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in the suffering of the, in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began in which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me, Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You are aware that all who were in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phrygellus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me. And was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him, grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. So as we take maybe a little bit closer look, what I want to do, uh, as we take a closer look at this would be highlight the commands. So we, we already got the, hopefully we got the big picture. Don't be ashamed, not ashamed, not ashamed. That's the issue at hand. That's the topic. But there are four commands that stand out in the English text. And so what we'll do is work through it again, a little closer look, uh, seeking to apply it and take it to heart ourselves. But we're going to look at the four commands, the four mandates. So if you will, here are four mandates for Ministry. Here are four mandates for pastors, four mandates for Christians, four mandates for Christian churches like ours that have to do with fidelity, that have to do with faithfulness. If we, if we're going to be a church another week, <laughs> I'd like it to be longer than another week, but you know, we, day by day, week by week, if we're going to be a legitimate church in the eyes of the Lord, we would want to have these mandates taken to heart. Um, 
as what we would want to do. So, number one, first ministry mandate that we can highlight from our text would be this. Number one, we must not be ashamed of the gospel. We must not be ashamed of the gospel. I know that's the theme of the whole thing, but it is the first command in the English text, so I want to highlight it to begin with. We must not be ashamed of Christ or the good news about Christ. We must not be. We must not be embarrassed. We must not find displeasure with the gospel and the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the good one. We see it right there in verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed. Do not be embarrassed by Jesus and what he's accomplished and the way he has called us to proclaim the good news about him. Do not be ashamed. Now, I think it's probably likely that Timothy probably never stood up on a Sunday morning at Ephesus and said, I just want you all to know I'm ashamed of Jesus. Who's with me? Amen. That probably didn't happen. Right? So it's probably not that gross and that explicit. But what we do see is this timidity and this tentativeness. And remember last Sunday, if you were here, Paul says you need to be fanning into flame your heart, right? You need to restoke that fire because it, it, it needs it, right? So he's not preaching Christ the way he would if he were affirming Christ, and and if he weren't embarrassed, and the church isn't standing up and standing against those who would oppose or offer something different, there there must be a sense of, of displeasure, even if they're not saying it outright. I mean, who in the world would just say it outright if we say we're Christians? We wouldn't. But apparently it is happening and it can happen. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. And throughout the whole letter, there's all of these different ways of saying gospel. And that's just another way of saying gospel. The testimony about our Lord, right? The testimony that says, here's what he did, right? In the Middle East on a Friday afternoon, executed outside of the city gates. But not like all of the others who'd been executed. He was who he said he was. He was raised from the dead, having lived a perfect life of obedience. All of that's packed in there. The testimony about our Lord. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Don't be ashamed of the good one who's the centerpiece of the good news regarding salvation for sinners. Don't be embarrassed by that. No, that's the main thing. And he also adds, if you keep going there in verse 8, nor of me his prisoner which is a pretty interesting way of saying, saying it because he's not a prisoner of Jesus. Jesus has ascended. He's a prisoner of Rome, in Rome. But why is he imprisoned in Rome? Because he's been a gospel testifier. Because he's been a gospel preacher. Because he's been faithful to proclaiming Christ and protecting the gospel of Christ. And so he's imprisoned for telling the truth. But he says, I'm here because of Jesus. So don't be ashamed of me either. Because to be ashamed of me in a certain sense, would be to be ashamed of Jesus because I'm here because of Jesus. So the underlying problem, the reason he has to say this is because to whatever degree there's a sense of embarrassment, there's a sense of of, of shame regarding Jesus. And what happens when we're ashamed of the gospel? Let's think about that. We're probably not just going to come out and say it, but we might under pressure try to change it to make it more palatable. Maybe we shouldn't talk about sin. 
Because that offends people when we tell people that they're sinful and that their behaviors and their actions and their thoughts are sinful and they're not pleasing to God and they're not helpful to society and they're not helpful to their families and they're not helpful to themselves. If we don't talk about sin, the gospel won't make any sense. So we're embarrassed of the gospel when we change the gospel. Well, you know, God loves you because you're a good person and God helps those who help themselves. And as long as you do your best, God will meet you in the middle and everything will be fine. Isn't Jesus a great example? Well, that's not the gospel, right? So we, we end up changing it when we're embarrassed. Maybe we make it softer, like I was just doing. Or may, maybe we make it softer by saying, you know what? Many paths lead to heaven. And you know, people really like, you know, pluralism. And, and so maybe, maybe Jesus is one way. Well, that's not true if you read Acts chapter 4. It's not true if you listen to Jesus in John chapter 14. But if we're ashamed, we're going to say he's one of many ways. Well, if he's one of many ways, what in the world was... How how terrible is God? If there were other ways, why did he execute his own son? doesn't even make sense. Or some people want to change the gospel and make it harder, right? Well, you know what you need to do? You need to do this and this and this and this, and then maybe God will accept you. No, 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 no. We're, we're even going to see that it's a free gift. It's grace. It's all, it's based upon everything he's done. So some people love them some legalism. And so they were going to make the, they're going to call it gospel, but it's actually legalism. So it might be licentiousness and, and it's somehow, you know, it, you, you don't have to actually trust in Christ. On the other side, it might be you have to trust in Christ and, and do all the other things because that's what people want. I mean, there's all different ways for us if we're not sold out to the finished work of Christ that we're going to be ashamed. And it shows in different ways. If we don't think people actually have to believe in Jesus, we wouldn't be preaching the gospel, right? And then when our our culture maybe gets mad at us because they don't understand or maybe they do understand, and then we've got to change the message because we want to be relevant and and we want to have our place at the table, we're going to maybe change the message. We're going to doctor it up. We're going to tinker with it or do something like that. And I'm going to suggest to you that shows we're ashamed. Think about the illustration. Well, we should move on. Having too much fun talking about bad things, um, I, I guess. Paul's going to go on later just... By way of example, we already read the whole text, but but down in verse 12, he will say, I'm not ashamed. And so he says, don't be ashamed. He's going to say, okay, and and I'm a real life example. I'm not a perfect person, but, but I'm not ashamed. Timothy, you could, you could do it too. Ephesus, you could do it too. And then he also goes down to highlight, uh, Onesiphorus in verse 16. He's not ashamed of my chains. And so there's another example. So I'm an example, Paul's going to say, of not being ashamed. Onesiphorus is an example of not being ashamed. Ephesian church, you can do it too. Right? Timothy, you can do it too. It can be done. It doesn't make any sense to be ashamed of the gospel. It doesn't make any sense uh, for a couple of reasons. It doesn't make any sense to, uh, to be ashamed of the gospel. If you look back at our verse in verse 8, where it starts with, therefore, it doesn't make any sense to be ashamed of the gospel because the therefore points to something that came before it. And he says, you know what? We were not given a spirit of fear. We're given a spirit of power. We're given a spirit, a a spirit of self-control. See, we are able to not be ashamed because God has provided unique spiritual supernatural power for us to not be ashamed. So it doesn't make sense to be ashamed because we have the tools that we need as a church. 
But it also doesn't make sense to be ashamed. Because when we think about Jesus, and he's going to get there, and I'm going to save it for a little bit later, but by way of preview, it doesn't make sense to be ashamed of Jesus because Jesus didn't fail. Think about that. If Jesus came and said, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up, and the bugs ate him, we should be ashamed. He was just like all of these other people who make grandiose claims and he didn't deliver. But if he did what he said he was going to do, and he played by the rules, he did. He fulfilled all righteousness. And he was raised from the dead in time, in space, in history. It doesn't make any sense to be ashamed. It doesn't make any sense to be embarrassed. Going back to, the, to, to my illustration at the beginning, we say to people, we're proud of you when they succeed. When they're quitters or rule breakers, We might say, you know, I'm ashamed of you. You just quit. I'm ashamed of you. You cheated. But where there's success, right? He did it. Don't be ashamed, Ephesian church. Don't be ashamed of him. Don't, don't be embarrassed by him. He said what he was going to do, and he did it in real, in real time and space. It's why it's called the good news. He accomplished perfect redemption for his people. If you just think about it for us as a church, why in, why, why in the world would we possibly want to be ashamed and hold back and restrict proclaiming the good news about Jesus? We don't think he was a failure. He wasn't. So it just doesn't even make sense. He's going to unpack the details of that, but I'm saving it for the next ministry mandate because they overlap. The next ministry mandate for us, if we're going to be a legitimate church, would be this. We must suffer for the gospel. We must suffer for the gospel. Sounds counterintuitive, I know. But even think of the logic. If we're not ashamed... And there's going to be hostility. We're willing to suffer for it if it's right. We're willing to suffer for it if, it, if it's true. So how about, how about this in verse 8? Look there with me if you would. But share in suffering. Share in suffering. This, this one's actually the first imperative if you're looking at a Greek New Testament. The, the first one, don't be ashamed, isn't actually even a command in the Greek text, but it is in the English because they're, they're connected. So I think it's a legitimate English translation. That's why I dealt with it as a command. But I just want you to know ever so quickly, this actually is the strong command that carried the don't be ashamed. Suffer, but share in suffering. Share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. So how can we do this? God provides that we can do this. We've already looked uh, back at verse 7 where we've not been given a, given a spirit of, uh, of of fear, but of power and of self-control and love. So here it is. It's by the power of God we're going to do this. But do notice we're called to share in suffering for the gospel. Now that's counterintuitive, right? If it's the good news about perfect redemption for everyone who would ever believe you can be forgiven of your sins, it's good news. Why in the world would anybody suffer for that? 
Well, they wouldn't in a spiritually sane world. Right? If we're all spiritually sane, there would be no suffering for the good news. Isn't it good news that Jesus lived and died and was raised from the dead and always lives now to intercede on our behalf? And if you trust in him, he will never forsake you. He will give you perfect Sabbath rest. You can be sure that God accepts you because he's the one ultimate perfect mediator. It's good news. And you're going to say to me when you hear that, that's the best thing I've ever heard. That's wonderful news. Thank you for telling me the good news. In fact, it meets my greatest need. I've got a lot of needs, but that meets my greatest need because it's an eternal need. No suffering. Crucify him. Give us Barabbas. Luke chapter 23, I think it is. That's a spiritually insane world. And we live in a spiritually insane world. Thankfully, the Lord is working and drawing men and women and boys and girls to himself through the preaching of the good news. We're thankful for that. Most of us here are testimonies of that. As a naive, brand new Christian, I can just think, I just remember not knowing much about the Bible. So I thought everybody was going to say, thank you for telling me. Why wouldn't they? It's good news. Perfect redemption. Free gift. I, I, I was, I was so excited and I thought it was going to be the case. And some people were thrilled. Some people weren't. And maybe you don't get the job that you interviewed for. Or the promotion. Or the good family relationships you'd always dreamed of. And watched movies about. And then they're suffering. Thankfully, we've been given power to deal with it. But we are called, mandated, even commanded, if we're going to be legitimate Christians, a legitimate church, a legitimate pastor, we are going to suffer for the cause of Christ. We are going to suffer for the gospel. We're not going to be ashamed and buckle under the pressure because we do have good news that people need to hear and we're willing to take it on the chin if need be. But it is a command to suffer. Some aren't willing to do it. It's no wonder that you have... Legitimate, thriving, healthy churches dying. Not willing to suffer for the cause of the gospel. Being ashamed. Tinkering with it. Suffering for good news. You know, I think, I think it's helpful to think of the good news as good news. <laughs> so, so even think of the, of the, the label that's used. The gospel means good news. It's reporting terminology. There, ever since you've had humans, you've had reporting. You've had newscasters, if you will. Even if they did, even if they weren't miked, right? Even if they weren't on television or on the internet or on social media, there have been news tellers ever since there's been human history. And so, the Bible borrows from that kind of terminology because it's common terminology. Guess what I saw? Guess what I witnessed? I saw a crime. Here's what happened. I'm going to report it to the authorities, right? Or I saw an act of bravery. I saw a, a, an act of someone risking in their own life to go and rescue someone else who was in trouble. I observed a battle that happened, and here's who won. I'm going to run back to my people and say, 
we lost. Run. Or we won. I've got good news. There's victory for our people. It's good news. It's newscasting. Well, where am I going with all of this? If you report the news, and you report the news truthfully, some people are going to be delighted. Thank you for telling us the truth. Other people, as we know, even in the 21st century, if not especially in the 21st century, if you report the news truthfully, some people are not going to be delighted. Maybe because it doesn't fit the underlying narrative. Doesn't support what we want to be true. Ever since the gospel has happened, there's been reporting. Guess what happened to Jesus outside of the city gates? Guess what also happened to Jesus three days later outside of the city gates? And there are eyewitnesses. We've talked to them, the real people. And remember, Jesus said, Jesus interpreted the meaning. He said, if you die, you will live. If you believe in me, if you trust in me. I did not come to be served, Mark chapter 10, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom, as a payment for many. We know the meaning. We know the meaning. It doesn't make any sense to suffer for the gospel unless we know our Bibles well enough to know the history of Jesus and what they did to him, the history of the human race and the sinfulness of the human heart. And the history of God's sovereign, amazing grace, drawing even the hostile sometimes, like the Apostle Paul, the persecutor of the church, the ravager of the church from the book of Acts. And when God effectually called him, it was effective, ineffectual. But we are called to suffer for the gospel. Is it worth it? Sometimes I might not think it is. Because I don't like suffering. People who like suffering have a problem, right? It's not natural or normal to like suffering. But it's helpful to learn about it from the Bible. And to learn it even here. Okay, church, you're super excited. You've got good news. You can tell people about perfect redemption. Guess what? Some people are going to love it. And some people are going to hate it. And just as a reminder, um, they... they they crucified the perfect one who was the perfect preacher of perfectly good news. All right. Helpful to know. It's interesting to think about how we judge our success. Somebody said... Uh, from they weren't a church member, they were visiting, and they, they said not long ago, they said, wow, you guys must be doing something right. Auditorium's full. And I smiled, and who knows what I said. Maybe I lied and said, yeah, you're right. <laughs> I'm a sinner. That would be my last conclusion, to be quite honest. Who can't pack a room? We do it all the time. There's a lot of people here. It means we're successful. 
No, I don't have a martyr complex. I'm glad there aren't five of us. <laughs> I mean, it, it might be a sign of something good. But when the pressure's on because they don't like hearing the good news, which is spiritually insane, but it's a reality. All who were in Asia have forsaken me. Oh, he must not have been faithful. Because if he would have been faithful, then everyone in Asia would have been in the auditorium. That's not the right way to think. It's not the right way to think at all. We celebrate great times and we celebrate growth and conversions and all of those things. Don't get me wrong. But Paul looks like an utter failure. It might be fueling Timothy's embarrassment and embarrassment for the gospel because, you know, if God were in it with us here, we wouldn't be suffering. Actually, God is empowering you, Timothy, to suffer and it's a mandate that you would be willing to suffer. Counterintuitive, I know. We should probably move on. I, I, I need I need a breath because we're gonna. This is the best part, okay? So, why would we not be ashamed, and why would we be willing to suffer? Because he succeeded; he didn't fail. Here goes. How about this? In verse nine, it says, "Here's what he successfully did." This is why I'm not ashamed. This is why we should be willing to suffer. Who saved us? He's he's the sole actor. He, he didn't save ourselves. He didn't help us. He saved us. He, he delivered us. He delivered us from our sin. He delivered us from his own righteous indignation. He saved us from getting what we deserve. He who saved us. It's just loaded term. He saved us. We can just stop there and say, if he saved us, then if I need to suffer for him, I will suffer for him. If he saved us, the last thing in the world I'm going to do is be embarrassed. The last thing in the world I'm going to do functionally, even if I won't say it with my mouth, is I'm so ashamed. No, if he saved us, what am I going to do? You know where all this is going into chapter 4. Preach the gospel. Preach the word. And when you preach it, you're excited. You you think it's true. You're bold. You're not ashamed. It's, I've got some good news for you, maybe. If you're willing to accept it. No, no, he's, he's, he's all in. Timothy, proclaim chapter 4, verses 1 and following. Proclaim the good news like you're not ashamed because he's not a failure. He succeeded. He, he saved us. If I really believe that's true, what in the world am I going to do? What are we going to do as a church? Hide the gospel? Talk about something else? No, if we really think he saved us, we're going to preach the gospel come Heaven or high water, right? That's what we're going to do. He saved us. Who saved us? And called us. Think Romans chapter 8, 29 and 30. The, the, the supernatural Holy Spirit, effective, effectual call. He did that. I was hostile before if I'm Paul. And he did that. Who saved us and called us. And how did he call us? He called us to a holy calling. And I would encourage you. Some people see that as sanctification could be true. Right? He saves us. He calls us. He sanctifies us. He does all of the things. That, that's true. But also think of it in terms of he called us to a holy calling. If you're in the Old Testament world and you have the, 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 the ordinary utensils that you eat with every day, those are not the holy utensils. But if you're involved in offering true, legitimate sacrifice to God, the priests have a unique calling and they have the holy instruments 
that are special, that are unique. So think of it in that context. While you're suffering and taking it on the chin and Paul's in the Mamertine prison ready to have his head chopped off under the rule of Nero, he's making the contrast. I've been called, we've been called by God, effectually by the Spirit because he saved us to a special, extraordinary, dignified, holy calling. It doesn't look like it. But I'm telling you, this is what's actually real. He's done that. If that's really true, even if it doesn't look like it, then I'm not ashamed. Not because of our works. He's being redundant there, but he loves to be redundant about that. He saved us, not because of our works, but because of his own, oh, this is great, his own purpose. Right? And whenever I see that word in the New Testament, I get excited because the divine decree, the divine purpose that's been designed before time begins. Ephesians chapter 1 and the divine purpose does in fact unfold and it unfolds effectually. I keep using that word because it's an important word. It's effective by design. The divine purpose. Oh, let's keep going. There's more. But because of his own purpose, his own decree, his own design and grace which he gave us, redundant again, free, gracious, in Christ Jesus. When? Before the ages began? Right? I, I don't have a point of reference other than biblical points of reference. This this happened before the ages began? Again, this is Ephesians 1 talk. This is covenant of redemption talk. Pactum salutis talk if you want to do Latin with me together. Right? This is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit having a divine purpose, having a divine decree. This is how it's going to unfold. Oh, that's how we got saved? I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed at all. This, this theology of salvation is just stoking the fuel of my heart. This is helping me to fan into flame my heart, as Timothy was called to do. I hope it's happening to you as well. What crazy spiritual idiots we would be to be cowardly about the gospel? No way. Verse 10, and which now has been manifested or made known, made clear through the appearing, through the adventing, if you will, of our Savior Christ Jesus, who, what did he do? He abolished death. How about that? I mean, just that, that right there is just enough. You know what? The death problem that everybody has, you know what? It's gone. It's a, I, I, just, I just abolished that through his perfect death life, resurrection, and brought to life, ultimate life, not temporal life, ultimate end life that Adam didn't secure for us, but the last Adam does, brought life, eschatological, ultimate life, and immortality to light. How? Through the gospel. (laughs) Okay, I'm not not ashamed anymore. (laughs) What was I thinking? What was I thinking trying trying to impress people that aren't impressed with Christ? It goes back to that, that old classic line from Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the famous British preacher of about a hundred years ago, and he posed the question, are we trying to feed the sheep or amuse the goats? Oh, kind of interesting to think about. I'm not ashamed. He abolished death, brought eternal life and immortality. According to the divine decree, I'm going to preach the gospel again and again and again. And when I hesitate, you need to remind me of these kinds of things. That's what Paul's up to. 
Suffer for the cause, Timothy, because it's worth it. Like nothing else has ever been worth it. For which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which, which is why I suffer as I do, right? Not because he's a lawbreaker, but because he's committed to the same gospel that Christ is the centerpiece of. And then he says, but I'm not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. <laughs> it's awesome. It's, it's phenomenal what's happening there. The sure death blow to our greatest problem has been delivered through his perfect death. I'm not ashamed because I'm trusting in Christ and Christ did all of the things. I, I don't have faith in faith. I feel terrible for people who have faith in faith or faith in phantoms or faith in themselves. But I, Paul says, I know, I'm confident in my ability to keep myself. No, I know, I am confident in his objective work on my behalf. I know who I've believed in. I know who I've trusted in. The resurrected Savior. And he's able... I love the verbiage. Maybe it's one reason why I like 2 Timothy so much. To guard. The military image. He is guarding my eternal redemption. It is sure. It is certain. It is secure according to divine decree and purpose. And what is Jesus doing? He's guarding my eternal inheritance for me. That's what he's doing. It's great. It's meant to be strong. It's not meant to be cowardly. It's meant to be bold. And it's not cowardly. It is bold. Interestingly enough, if you go down to verse 14, or over to verse 14, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. So see the, the, the word play? Jesus guards our eternal destiny and redemption. It's sure. It's certain. And in light of what he does, we on earth now as pastors and Christians and as a church, we have the business of guarding the gospel. We're guarding the good news message that's to be proclaimed and preserved because if we don't guard it and preserve it, we can't proclaim it. But we're doing it as, as attempting to mirror the image of what's happening eternally by Christ ultimately in heaven and that's he's guarding our salvation. It only makes sense that, again, God doesn't need us but he uses human means. It only makes sense that we as a church wanting to be a legitimate church would not be spineless, would not be cowardly, but we would be committed to guarding. Someone might say, that sounds kind of militant. Good job, got the idea. (laughs) It is militant, that's why he uses the word guard, right? We don't need to be militant about everything. I I don't want to be that kind of church. I don't want to be that kind of person. I don't want to be that kind of husband or dad or friend. But when it comes to guarding the gospel, which is the negative side of preaching the gospel, we ought be militant at all costs. I love the correspondence. It would be insane for us not to guard it and preach it. Well, let's do three and four quickly. 
next ministry mandate. So don't be ashamed. Suffer. Number three, we must follow the right pattern for doctrine. We must follow the right pattern for doctrine. And number four, I'm just going to preview them because there's too much good stuff here to talk about. So number four will be next week. And number three will be the fourth ministry mandate will be, or maybe if I tell you now, you won't come back. (laughs) I think you will. Number four, we must guard true gospel doctrines. So I know we've already gone there, but he's going to develop it in verses 14 and following. And maybe I want to talk more about militancy. I don't know. (laughs) I want to end with this. And then we're going to celebrate the supper together, which is such such a fitting thing for us to do. We shouldn't be ashamed because Jesus is victorious. Jesus was not on the losing team or the cheating team. Right? He says on the cross, it is finished, done, secure. And he's raised from the dead and he ascends. So we are for Jesus because of what he's done for us. We're not ashamed. Going back to that illustration at the beginning. It would be ludicrous for us to be ashamed of the gospel, to be ashamed of Christ because he's not the loser. He's the winner. He saved us. But now I want you to think with me about the fact that the Bible says in the book of Hebrews that Jesus is not ashamed of us. I believe that's true, but that's puzzling. Because we're supposed to not be ashamed of the winners. And the last time I checked, the Old Testament and the New Testament were not the winners. Whether it's Psalm 14 or Romans 3, none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned. So Jesus is not ashamed of us. Almost seems wrong. What seems more right is for Jesus to look at all that we've done. Oh, Isaiah even says filthy rags regarding our good works. It seems more reasonable for Jesus to look at us and say, I'm so ashamed of you. And can I push it a little bit further? If Jesus did that, and we forgot about all that he accomplished and why he accomplished it, but if he just did that, apart from knowing all of those things, I think the angels in heaven would praise him because it would be true if he were ashamed of us. Made in God's image, called to have dominion over the creation. We know how that went. Here's the punchline. It's so good. Hebrews 2.11 says that he's not ashamed, same word, he's not ashamed to call them brothers. <laughs> how could this be? How? How could this be when it's not true? It 
It says at the beginning of the verse, for he who sanctifies, cleanses, makes holy, spiritually cleans, if you will, and those who are sanctified have one source. It's him. He's not ashamed to call you his spiritual sibling because you are the victor who obeyed all of the rules and won not because of what you've done, but because he actually did it for you on your behalf. He's called in Hebrews our older brother. He's our representative. It's, it's so good. It's so good. But I don't think you see its goodness if you don't first see how counterintuitive it is. So therefore, why in the world would we ever be ashamed of him? He's not ashamed of us because of what he's done for us. It doesn't get any better than this. It just doesn't get any better than any of this. May God help us to act like Christians and to act like a Christian church who promotes and guards the good news of salvation in Christ. Right? Father, thank you for this morning and thank you for time together in your word, studying this great little book we call Second Timothy. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who saved us and called us with a holy calling and all of these wonderful things that are true in Christ. Indeed, we do not want to be ashamed. We understand that the temptation is real, however. So continue to remind us about the greatness of salvation in Christ. Lord, we don't want to just be a club with a religious name. We actually want to be a real church and we want to be a real church today and we would long for this to be a real church in the next generation as well. But we know we're dependent upon you, dependent upon the power of the Spirit. Help us to not be arrogant and prideful. Help us to be zealous for promoting and protecting the good news of salvation in Christ. We're so thankful. Thank you even now that we're able to eat and drink in remembrance of Christ. We're not ashamed of him. He's our champion savior. He's the victor. He's the one who won and he won not just in general, but he won for us. And so may we find ourselves resting in Christ so that we would leave here motivated to live lives of love for Christ and love for neighbor. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.